Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, your source for helping you dominate and insulate your growing practice through two pillars of success, systems and marketing. And now here's your host, Dr. Peter Bolden. Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have a good friend, Garrett Gunderson. And Garrett is the Chief Wealth Architect at Wealth Factory, the author of a New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows, the co-author of a new book that I've been the recipient of, which is amazing, called What Would the Rockefellers Do? Garrett's company, The Wealth Factory, helps entrepreneurs optimize cash flow, streamline their finances, keep more of their hard-earned money so they can make more powerful investments with their best creator of their wealth, which is their business. Garrett has appeared multiple times on ABC, News Now, Your World with Neil Cavuto on Fox, CNBC's Squawk Box, and tons of more. I've, I see you all the time online and in your video. I'm so I'm, um, I'm super happy to have you on the podcast. Honestly, your guidance to me personally has made a huge impact on my financial career early on. I've known you for, I don't know, probably 10 plus years now and consider you really a great financial mentor and a good friend. You're a cool dude, but most importantly, just a good person. And I'm, I'm really fired up for today's show. I've got my pen in my hand because every time I talk to you, Garrett, I get a tremendous amount of value. So I'm looking forward to, to jumping in. So welcome and, and thanks for doing this, pal. Well, look, man, we became friends before we ever got to know you know much about the business side of things or what I do, hanging out and really kind of got to know you a little bit. And funny, because every time I go to Atlanta, which was mostly hanging out in the airport, I still text you and you're like, oh man, I'm in the airport. So we hung out at the airport. We hung out at some dental events. And yeah, I'm trying to rope you into some cool entrepreneurial communities as well so we could spend some more time together. Yeah, I look forward to doing this because one, I know you've actually read my books or for sure read What Would the Rockefellers Do recently. And so that's kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, you you know, I also just think that you're one of the more resilient people out there that has uh, gone out there and done some pretty cool things. And you think bigger than, than a lot of the, uh, the people that I would normally talk to in your space. So yeah, all that being said, I look forward to this. Well, that's kind of, you know, that was, thank you for all that. And, and really kind of that helps me parlay into really this podcast, you know, it's the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and, but it's not a clinical podcast. Like I don't cover anything clinical in here because there's really, there's a lot of those. And you, and you if you want to learn clinical, there's a lot of venues where people can do that online, like videos and stuff. So I wanted to contribute to the, to the ecosystem kind of of dentistry in, in the business. And it's, it's designed to help dentists develop systems the marketing, the strategy, everything in place to either grow their practice, Garrett, or just protect what they've created, right? And so this is great. I mean, what 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 could be more important than kind of your financial mentorship here in this in this arena to us dentists? So I know that you work with a lot of doctors, dentists, chiropractors, etc. Right. So what kind of advice are people following that actually hurt them? rather than help them when it comes to money. Well, you've probably heard this many a times through your career and life is like people are told, you got to start early. You got to start investing. You got to put money in retirement plans. And that entire framework and methodology has people take good money from their business. They don't create enough liquidity and savings so they don't have staying power. And they lock their money away till 59 and a half or longer, putting it in places they don't understand. They don't know how they're going to benefit from it. They've got automatic fees that are coming out of their life. And unfortunately, they're taking risk with it because 
the market doesn't quite perform how it's supposed to, but they feel some level of guilt or some level of that's what they're supposed to do. But I'm here to tell you, the real road to wealth is to own a business. Everything else is there to support the business and to capture the wealth that the business creates. And if you steal or confiscate money from that business to go with so-called compound interest or accumulation, which is a 98% failure rate for dentists, they get to age 65, they've worked hard, they've tried to save money, they've thought about budgeting, which puts them in a constraint mindset instead of a production mindset. And here's the deal, no one shrinks their way to wealth, but that budgeting mindset has them cut back and miss out on the opportunity to invest money in their practice and hire the A-teamers because a lot of dentists don't hire great people or they don't have the right processes that allow them to be more efficient or the right technologies to be kind of like world-class and create that level of automation simply because they feel guilty like they need to put money in some retirement plan or defined benefit plan or 401k and that actually slows them down and it absolutely hurts them. And most importantly, if anyone's actually acting as a cheapskate and they try to save money by doing things themselves, then they stop actually focusing on their biggest producing assets. And the biggest mistake I see is they have bad accountants and they pay, they way overpay on taxes. And that's just absolutely confiscating wealth from them. Wow. Wow. The term even just confiscate, you know, I wrote that down, like the confiscate money from your business. And that was like a light bulb thing. And I, you do see that happening. You take money from the business and, and, and wow, look at this. And then you sideline it into something that's going to be, like you said, non-productive until you're 59 or 60 years old, as opposed to kind of, I'm guessing you're advocating, obviously keeping that in place and either rolling it forward and, and staying in your lane of what you, how you know how to make money. Is that right? Absolutely. Invest in what you know. Mm -hmm. We all have our own investor DNA. So when you figure out what your real values are, what you're paying attention to, what makes sense and what you actually like, and then you add your competencies is where you have some degree of ability and knowledge. And then you add drivers, which means that you're really kind of adding fuel to it because you find yourself talking about it and researching it and absolutely immersing yourself in it. Then you focus, you don't diversify diversification for a dentist is diversification. Once again, taking money out of something good uh -huh. and spreading it thin because it's admission of ignorance. Oh, I don't know it's going to work. I'll just spread it thin. The more things you spread your money into, the more risks you start to take because the more things that can go wrong, rather than Andrew Carnegie saying, I invest all my eggs in one basket and I watch it like a hawk. And that's absolutely the road to wealth. Invest your DNA, stick with what you know. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know where to invest, Stay in cash. Rookie investors always invest. Seasoned investors stay in cash until the right opportunities come along. And they're comfortable sitting in cash for extended periods of time. Which, you know, which some people get very uncomfortable with because they think, oh, this could be in a CD or I could have been investing this or it could be working for me. And people almost get somewhat panicky. I mean, you can tell me you obviously deal with people a lot more than me in the financial world, but just my friends, even they get kind of panicky when they're sitting on a boatload of cash. They're like, I need to make this work. Right. And maybe at that point is when people start yep. making irrational decisions, maybe about that. I mean, you tell me if that's something that you see. You nailed it. That's, that's what happens is okay. we watch the news and it's like, Hey, there's inflation. You're getting crushed. If you're sitting in cash, we, we listen to financial professionals that have interest in peddling products to us. So, of course, they're telling us to stay invested. But if we look at the best people out there, I read an article once called Predatory Investing. And I was like, oh, what an interesting title. But they actually highlighted Ted Turner. 
your boy right out there out of, you know, he's done a lot in Atlanta, obviously. Atlanta. Yeah. That's right. Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, and what he did was he started buying a lot of things based upon difficult markets. He stayed cash heavy and then invested when everybody else was tied up or they were decreasing in the stock market. Or we look at other situations like McDonald's. McDonald's, when the market went down, that's when they got aggressive buying real estate. Everybody else is riding the stock market down. They don't want to pull their money out because then they realize the loss where the other people sitting in cash, they have the liquidity, they have the power. And let me just give a really personal example. In the year 2000, the stock market's going down and all my clients are in the stock market because I was a product peddling financial advisor selling mutual funds and life insurance at the time. And in 99 and 98, everybody thought I was a freaking financial Einstein, but I was just like anyone else. Everybody made money during that Mm -hmm. time. Now, when they start losing money, where it was a little bit unique, and I got to admit, you know, you know me, I was, I was arrogant in my early 20s. So it's like, for me to go tell people, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And that they should get their money out of the market was one of the more difficult things I've ever done in my life. But I didn't want to look them in the eye and tell them, the market's on sale, or you're in it for the long haul. Because look, the market's on sale, they already bought, and now it's on sale. That's a bad idea, you know? Right. If I just... If I just went and got veneers and the next day they're 50% off, doesn't do me much good, right? So basically, I decided, okay, I got to figure out what I'm doing. And I spent six months and I figured out the strategy. So in 2001 and 2002, most people in the stock market lost a lot of money. My clients did 41% and 44% those two years, positive returns, because we sat in cash 80% of the time. But anytime there was an uptick in the market above a certain indicator, I moved them to the international market overnight and then moved them back to cash the next day. So they were almost always sitting in cash and only pouncing on opportunities, just like the Ted Turner and McDonald's examples I gave, and they crushed it. So I realized that the reason we feel like we always have to keep our money invested and because we've had these mantras of you got to make your money work and you, know, you want your money working for you. The problem is Jerry Seinfeld on, on one of the episodes says, hell, every time I send my money out to work, I find out my money's lazy because it comes back <laughs> with less than I said. He goes, I'm just going to work for the money and I just want my money to still be around. And, and you know, it's, it's we get that mantra. But if you really want your money to work for you, here's the mantra. Automatically save and deliberately invest. So just find a way to set your money aside, set up a separate account at your bank and then start storing cash in there. Don't have it be your normal checking account or your business checking account, because if your business is like mine, it has an insatiable appetite. I can always mm-hmm. invent ways to spend the money. And I know you, you've got a beautiful office, just like I do. I mean, you and I both have aesthetic value that we want really nice things. And look, if I let that money sit around, I'd probably spend it. So I actually make sure to put it in a separate account. And when there's a bunch of cash sitting there, then I just go, hmm, I wonder what opportunities are out there. And if there is an opportunity, I actually leave it there. And as you know from my book, Look What the Rockefellers Do, I actually store it in a place where it's earning 4 or 5% tax-free. And then I can still use that because it's protected when the market goes down. And then that's when I've, I bought a business in 2014 because this business was ripe for the purchase because they were struggling with something, but it gave me new capabilities. I bought a TV studio once because I knew that I could build products and that really changed the trajectory of what I do in my business. But once again, those are investments that relate to something I know and expand what I'm up to rather than going put it in a mutual fund or a company I've never been to the boardroom and I don't even know who the executives are and I've never looked at their financials. Like most people, they call that investing. I call that gambling. I call investing, investing in what you know. 
I love that, man. I, I really do. And that, you know, I alluded to how you made a big impact on my my financial advice. And that, you know, I got that kind of information from you. And I attribute that a lot to the success of my business because it definitely was a mentality shift from what I've quote unquote, I wouldn't call it brainwashed, but from the way I was raised or what I thought I should do in my adult financial life versus to what you kind of have mentored me into doing is really kind of stay in your lane, invest in what you know and early on. And I attribute a lot of, like I said, a lot of success and velocity of my business to that. Yeah. And I love it because you've treated your business like this asset. You've grown it. You've bought other practices. You've launched a podcast. Like you've continued to expand and refine your skills in multiple ways, even to the type of dentistry you do. Like to me, that's scale. And dude, let me just share like unsolicited. You didn't ask, but I'm going to share this. So there's a formula that makes this work. And the formula is a five-part formula. And this formula will take people and absolutely get them to financial independence in three years if they're pretty frugal and they're sitting on cash, or seven years if they're actually deep in a debt hole and they want to figure out how to get out of it. They follow these five steps and it's going to get in there. The first one is you get more efficient with your money. You keep more of what you make. You find out where Uncle Sam's taking more than their fair share and you're tipping the government. You find out where there's hidden fees and commissions with your investments. You find out how to restructure your loans, renegotiate interest rates so that you don't have to overpay on that, which 80% of dentists are. And then you finally look at your insurances and say, what well, do I have duplicate coverages and costs? That's the first step. You, you find ways okay. to be more efficient. The second efficient. step is you strategically engineer wealth, which allows you to eliminate diversification. You build your foundation, which is simply having enough liquidity, having your basics handled, like having the right type of umbrella policies or you know just basic insurances or estate plans or corporate structure. But then you create additional measures of safety around that, which is you build a war chest in your business, which is a source of cash or opportunity. You make sure you have an asset protection trust when you get to a certain level or even add a tax attorney to your life. So now you save even more taxes when you make a lot of money. And then you focus on growth. Once you have that foundation, you now have permission to say, hey, if I want to speculate inside of my business, which, you know, Roy Disney wrote a letter home to his parents during the Great Depression saying, I think the Americans are going to learn that gambling doesn't pay off. We decided the only kind of gambling we're going to do is in this studio that we have some control over. And look what came of Disney, right? So, so mm -hmm. you go with growth only in things that you relate to, that you know, and you eliminate everything else. You know, you, I'm sure you follow Tim Ferriss. I mean, he's been at my house a few times. We've been on vacation together. And this is a guy who moved to Silicon Valley before he invested in Silicon Valley. This is a guy who was ultimately frugal, saved a lot of cash, had his foundation handled, had the safety measures in place. Then he invested in Twitter and Uber and made, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Most people skip those first steps and it creates a major problem for them. So... So the third step is to accelerate investment income, which is any assets you have that don't produce cash flow, you find ways to make them produce cash flow, whether it's a retirement plan, whether it's a stock, whether it's a piece of real estate, whether it's your business, you find ways to optimize that cash flow and have it come in immediately so it can cover your expenses. And then the fourth one is the game changer. It's to scale your business revenue. It's to simply look at your business as this great asset and you grow it by continually giving up things that are lower level for you and continue to do the things that no one else can do but you. And Peter, for me, that's vision. People with vision, that's the rarest commodity and it creates the most value. And dollars follow value. So you want to create more value? You create a vision that people are compelled to work for. JFK said, let's man land a man on the moon and return him safely 
home in this decade. He died and we still did that. That was a vision that lives in someone's heart, not on some wall that doesn't make any sense. For me, it's 1 million entrepreneurs to economic independence. And that's what my life's about. So you know what? I'm writing books. I'm writing like a book a year, maybe some years more than a book. I'm doing podcasts like this. I'm doing webinars. I'm doing all these things that are higher level. Like I just filmed an entire course for Robert Kiyosaki. And what I had to give up was one-on-one coaching. What I had to give up was dealing with customer service and building out operations and dealing with all the preparation of the financials. I hired that out, which allowed me to scale to do the things that no one else can do. And the fifth thing is that you treat yourself as your greatest asset. It's called make it count. You make sure to take some time off. You relax, rejuvenate. You make sure that you're showing up the very best that you can. And you focus on living a legacy, not just leaving one behind. So recover cash, strategically engineer wealth, accelerate investment income, scale your business revenue, and make it count. If people follow those five things, they can actually get enough cash flow to cover all their expenses and give them enough freedom that every dollar they earn then is unencumbered by lifestyle and can grow their assets and their cash flow at an exponential rate. And they could annihilate what anyone else is doing because no one else could understand how are they doing things so fast? How can they do so much? How does this grow? And I know, like, I just went off on a diatribe there, but I just wanted, no, I wanted to throw that out. <laughs> you hear that paper, that paper rip? That was me, like, going next page because literally I'm, like, <laughs> writing notes as fast as I can. I guess I have the virtue of being able to go back and listen to this. But it's like, you know, it's like this is just eye-opening to me. And I love, I love this stuff, but it's still just hearing you talk about it. It just, you know, it makes it real. So I want to go, I want to go one step back. I got the five part formula. It's awesome. I'm going to put that in the show notes, outline it beautifully for people just to kind of look at it written down as well. But how much you mentioned about sidelining some money just in an investment account that basically you don't even see it's in a different account. What is your recommendation? Typically I always have heard 10%, but that may not be your number. 18%. 18% is my number. Now 18 is high, but realize that's not your business revenue. That's when you pay yourself and it's your personal income. And I'm not expecting people to just go, okay, I got to cut out and do less and eat, not eat at great restaurants. No, what you do is you pay less in tax. And so how do you pay less in tax? Number one, you find out if you have a good accountant. And if you don't have a good accountant, here's how you know. They tell you they're conservative or I have 15 questions. And if you hit me up, I'll give you the 15 questions. And you can post them in the show notes. But if you ask these questions, you can kind of filter if you have the right account. But if you find out and you have the right account, then you get proactive with them. You meet with them every quarter before you file your quarterlies. And when you get to multi-millions in revenue, you bring in a tax accountant and they're going to add more strategy. And then every three years, you have a different set of eyes come and look at your taxes. And you go back and amend returns if you miss anything. Because there's 77,000 pages of supporting documents just on the tax codes, so people are going to make mistakes. I had business partners that died in 06 in a plane crash. I overpaid my taxes, but fortunately, every three years, so in 08, I was looking over my taxes with the second set of eyes, and we were able to get $54,000 back. We've had doctors get back $457,000, $249,000, or as little as $951 through amending their returns. So the first thing is, Be proactive with your team and be in communication with them. The second way to save taxes, and this is huge, is take every expense you have in your life and ask, does this relate to my business? And if it does, you write it off. Too many people don't get their write-offs. So dentists all the time put pictures of their kids up and they don't write that off. But just the unions for acting and modeling would say you could write off $2,500 
for using your kids as a model, right, on your websites or up in your office, and you can pay your kids up to $6,300, and that's tax-free to them and tax-deductible to you, and it doesn't even mean that they spend the money. You still dictate where the money goes once it hits their accounts. The next thing is, hey, Peter, if you ever have any patients over to your house or you ever have any clients over since I know you live get that gangster lifestyle where you got that mansion, dude. You know, you got that gangster house. I love it. Oh, uh, love oh, that right. house. All right, all right. I, I just tell you, I think it's awesome. But you sent me a picture. Right. like, that is killer. You can have 14 <laughs> days a year where you bring people over, you charge uh-huh. the business for using that home. So think about right. the busiest time in Atlanta. Host it then. Charge what it would have cost to, to find another place like that. And guess what? You don't have to pay taxes on it, but your business gets to write it off. Like a meeting, it's commensurate with like a meeting space fee, right? Exactly. Like something like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so right. I had clients in Cleveland when the Republican National Convention was in town. I'm like, you guys better be hosting stuff, right? Like when there's major events going on, I'm like, man, that's when you want to lease your stuff out. But, you know, those are just a couple examples. I mean, there's so many examples I can go through of people that miss, uh, you know, deductions that could absolutely be deductions because they're afraid of taking them. But here's the deal. If you're not a sole proprietor, if you don't have a corporation, you have a 400% increased chance of getting audited. If you're an LLC or an S corp, it means you have one fourth the chance of being audited. And if you're not a C corp, it also means that you're going to get a lower tier auditor. So let's say you take a deduction and they disallow it. If it's less than 20% of your overall deductions, you pay a small penalty, you don't go to jail. And by the way, my clients don't ever pay those penalties because we know what you can write off and what you can't. The whole thing is, is it related to the business? And far too many people aren't writing off what they should. The third part to save tax is that you simply reclassify your income. So Peter, if you own buildings, you charge the highest rent possible based upon the comparables to your business because that's less tax than when you pay yourself W-2. Pay yourself a reasonable salary you might pay an associate but take everything else in distributions, you avoid taxation on that. Or let's say that you have a new division you open up where you do something that is only going to earn $50,000 for the business. I mean, maybe you get, you know, you do some supplements or maybe you do some unique little cosmetic thing that, you know, that you don't do for all your patients. You can set up a C corporation and flow that money in a separate corporation for that income and pay a lower tax on 50000 or under in a C corporation. So, there's, there's just so many examples of how you can reclassify your income so that you're paying less tax simply by how you take your money. So, I mean, I don't have time to go into all of them, but I at least wanted to give some examples there because this is absolutely a place where business owners can keep so much more of the money they're making. You know, it's funny. I, I, was on, I actually was on Mark's, Mark Costas' podcast, The uh, Dentalpreneur, just this week. And, and you were actually one of the subjects on uh, it kind of went into we talking about cost segregation and how you had opened our both of our eyes up to that and how that was a tremendous strategic uh, movement in, in, our, in reducing our tax liability because of the real estate we own. So we were giving you props on on his show um, just this just this week. So yeah, it's it's uh, man, all this stuff. I'm literally like my pen is on, on fire right now. Mark Costas has the biggest biceps in dentistry, dude. That guy is a machine. He does. Although he is. Yeah. He just got like, I'm always like, dude, how'd you get those arms, man? Just teach me the secrets. And I made him take me to the gym and show me a bicep workout. That's how much I was like, is this genetic or what the hell is going on? Yeah. He's like a big ultra ultra athlete or something. I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely in prime, prime shape. That's for sure. That's for sure. I'm like, where do you find the time, pal? But all right. So 
You know, what I like most about you, Garrett, is that a lot of us are familiar with kind of the millionaire next door and you're kind of the anti-millionaire next door in a sense that you don't, like I, you know, they recommend being scarce and, you know, saving on toilet paper and blah, blah, blah. And you, what I loved about you, what resonated with me when I first met you was you are an abundant, you know, you're all about abundance and not scarcity to, you know, not shrinking your way to greatness. You're all about abundantly kind of going into that. And I think that's important because I think scarcity is like, it just shuts your down. It's shut down, shuts down your vision, shuts down your mental capacity, just shuts you down, you know? Yep. So that's what I love most about you is kind of, you're just inspiring to say, Hey, come on, let's do this. Live abundantly. Cause it's an abundant world, especially right now. I mean, the Dow's about to, you know, to about that 20,000, you know, I mean, we're in a good time to, to kind of be rocking and rolling. Right. Absolutely. I mean, people are always afraid of uncertainty. And the more we focus on things we're uncertain of, the more scarcity we invite into our life. So the way I focus on being certain is saying, what do I have control over right now? Where am I gifted? What can I do right now to deliver more value, to serve more people, and to solve problems? And if you can think that way, you stay abundant. If you get caught up in the news and the negativity and all the drama that people like to bring out there in the world, then you can get sucked into scarcity, which is never about value creation, which means that you'll have less money because all of a sudden you're having conversations of poverty or poverty-based conversations based upon who you're talking to. And yeah, scarcity is the greatest destroyer of wealth there is. There's no greater destroyer. Scarcity has people believe that profit is evidence of wrongdoing, where abundance says profit's evidence of value creation. Scarcity is a mantra of fear, doubt, worry, limitation, lack, entitlement, where abundance is really about exchange because exchange creates wealth. Abundance about human innovation human ingenuity. Even if you didn't have the cash right now, scarcity would say, oh, I can't afford it. Abundance would say, what would it take to afford it? How could I deliver enough value to actually bring this forward into my life? Like when I told my wife years ago, I was like, we're going to go in the summer of 2017 and we're going to move to Italy for a whole summer. And then we started getting quotes in northern, northern Tuscany and they were a higher price than she expected. So she goes, oh, I just think it's too expensive. I said, what if? In the next two weeks, I could create that much more money than what we were already expecting to come in. Then would you do it? She said, sure. So what did I do? I went to work. I went to, I went to my office down in the basement of my house. I started to think. I thought, okay, how do I create more value for the people that are already in my life? How do I reach more people with the value that we're currently doing? And I just started saying, all right, here's, here's some ideas I have. And guess what? We got... $12,000 more than we needed above that within two weeks because it was a more abundant thought process than just going, oh, I guess you're right. We can't afford it. And most people stop there. They let money master them rather than be the master of their money. They let money become the obstacle, the reason or the excuse. But to me, financial freedom is when money is not our reason or excuse for doing or not doing something, or at least not the primary reason. And that we think more about what we have through relationships and through knowledge and through exchange. And there's so much opportunity if people can think abundantly. I'll tell you, when, when the market goes down, more dentists grab market share because most dentists get sucked into scarcity. They don't differentiate expenses. So they think, okay, we got to cut back. We got to reduce. And as you mentioned earlier, no one shrinks their way to wealth. So we look at the best companies, they invest their way through recessions, through hard times, because they know everybody else is scared, they're running, they can't think clearly, but the leaders kind of really gain. So it's more about a mindset and the individual 
And so abundance doesn't mean that we're ignorant and we're not mindful of our expenses. Right. But I believe in mindful cash management more than I believe in budgeting. I don't believe just in cutting. I believe we cut destructive expenses. I think we pay cash for our lifestyle expenses that are kind of the things that we, we go out and enjoy, but they're not necessities. I think it's important to manage and have the right amount of protective expenses like our liquidity and our insurances and corporate structures and estate plans. But the thing I always want people to remember are productive expenses. You hire the right employee, you spend a dollar, they make you $2. You invest the right dollar into marketing, it makes you $2. You invest into knowledge, you learn something and gain new skill, you invest a dollar, it's worth $3. So most people only think of investments as dots on a piece of paper, meaning numbers, but investments are in relationships. Investments are in knowledge and investments are in our increased capacity to deliver value and our own ability to make money, not just our money making money. Wow. Yeah. So going back, I heard you say something is, you know, we talk about money problems and I've heard you say that, that if you have a money problem, it's really never a money problem, just a symptom. What do you, what do you mean by that? So there's this formula I call it the value equation. And so money is a byproduct. Money's like a receipt. Like when you go to the grocery store, no one's looking, no one's going there to get receipts. They're going there to get, you know, the meat, potatoes, vegetables, or whatever it is that they eat, right? The kombucha, whatever it is in today's world. But you go there to get those goods. The receipt is just evidence of the goods. So money's just a storage of value. It just stores the value that we're not expending immediately. So if you have a lack of it, it's either a problem of a more precious form of capital called mental capital, which is our ideas, our knowledge, our wisdom, systems, tools, innovation, or relationship capital, people, networks, organizations, mentors, patients, customers, it's people, right? So it's either an idea problem or a people problem. Either we're not spending time with the right people or we don't know how to think about the issue. So we're one idea or one person away from solving any money problem that we have. And the money is just the scoreboard or the symptom of the issue, never the issue itself. Right. And, you know, as, as dentists, you know, we look at kind of the disease, like what's the etiology of what caused it? And so really the symptoms, I mean, this can kind of correlate the same kind of way as we kind of think about things in our day to day. It's really no different, just an analogy, a financial analogy, so to speak, looking at the symptom, not so much the, the underlying result. That makes yep. sense. Totally yeah. makes sense. Okay, so I want to I want to jump to something and ask you because I think a lot of people as as I hear this stuff, it's going to be like, well, I remember first time I heard you like mind blown, right? Like it's just it's so different from from just kind of what people have heard their whole lives, especially to maybe some of the younger dentists getting out who may not have you know, have life experience on their side or financial experience on their side, just because they're younger and they're in their, you know, discretionary income is probably just newer to them, possibly. I don't know. Just making an assumption. So on Mark's podcast, I actually talked about, you know, he said, you know, we talked about advice you'd give to a young dentist. And my advice was, you know, financially stay humble a little bit, resist the temptation to spend just because you have good income now. You know, so I always tell them, just don't spend just because you have money. What advice would you give to young dentists in terms of the big 30,000 foot view, long-term plan? Like, what could you do now, like to change their mindset? Go. <laughs> all right. So first, so first of all, you gave them good advice because I've been guilty of it. I imagine mm. you've been guilty of it. I've been guilty of it. We, Heck yeah. we spend optimism, right? We have an amazing month. 
So might as well go spend that because it's going to be that way or better every month in the future, <laughs> you know? And so they've got to resist spending optimism. So I totally agree with that. But let me say it this way. The advice I'd give them is, look, you're going to here to live within your means, but there's three ways to look at that. One way would be to cut back. And if you're a train wreck, that's good advice. But if you're not going in debt, then that's actually bad advice because it'll hold you back. I've already covered the second piece, which is to be more efficient. You've got to have enough financial knowledge to know how to capture wealth and keep more of what you make. But the third thing is to expand your means, that there's no greater thing than to expand your means. And so all that being said, I would, I would go back and tell them, look, you're going to hear a hundred times. It's all about who you spend your time with and the right relationships make all the difference. And I 100% agree with that. But the wrong relationships are exponentially worse. And if we could avoid just one of the wrong, like Peter, man, most of my pain came from three bad relationships in my life, a business partner, a real estate partner, and a shyster that I got, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like associated with, even though I wasn't in a partnership with, and that had so much impact. So I didn't listen to my wife when her intuition was, you know, stay away from two of them. I didn't mm -hmm. use my team, like my my CEO or my attorney or my investment advisor or have some type of filtration system because I think it's human nature to fall in love with ideas. And when we fall in love with ideas or opportunities, we can't do due diligence because the higher the emotion, the lower the IQ. So have someone to help you vet out relationships and avoid potentially damaging relationships because it's going to save you so much heartache and so much headache over time that you know, you would actually get all that back to put into more constructive and productive things. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what's cool about the Wealth Factory, you know, not to give you a kind of a, a shameless plug, but you you have a team of kind of, you know, it's an integrated team where everyone, you know, from the cash flow and, you know, all the guys you have on there, the CPAs and attorneys and all that stuff, yep. which was really cool process when I went through it, just seeing how, you know, I met with a cash flow guy and he was like, look, we can find, I forget how much it was now, but it was significant. By doing nothing other than just kind of changing a few things up, it was freeing up cash flow that I could jump back into my business. And then I looked at asset protection. You know, so you have all the right pillars for someone if they are looking for that. So I think that's super cool that you you designed that intentionally. Yeah, and look, man, if we have an amazing team, IBM called it a fifty two hundred percent principle that when you had great people around you, you were, you had fifty two hundred percent more growth and production. Steve Jobs said that it was a hundred to one return. And there was no other kind of return in the world other than having amazing people. And we think mm -hmm. about that in our business, but what about in our financial life? If you looked at your retirement planner, your accountant, your attorney, your mortgage banker, if you have a cash flow specialist, I mean, you know, if you have different insurance professionals, are they the A team? Because the Rockefellers have moved wealth for six generations and grown it because they have A team. The people that actually have not are the ones that don't have a team and those holes end up coming back to suck money away, to bite them in the ass and absolutely cost them money. And I've just seen it because the ultra wealthy have something called the Rockefeller family office that's all an integrated team. And that's what I modeled my office after was a virtual family office where you have everybody subscribed to the same philosophy, giving you a second opinion, making sure everything's working on the same page, that you've got the foundation built. And that's almost like an unfair advantage where you know you can perpetuate wealth, where you know you're going to have something to count on, where everybody else has these ups and downs where they lose a whole bunch because they don't have someone protecting them.
They don't have someone giving them due diligence because if a financial advisor is compensated on the product they sell you, it's almost impossible for them to give you good advice because they have a hard time performing due diligence because they're biased towards making money. Not that they're bad people. It's a conflict of interest. So, I mean, that's where you've got to have your own team. You got to have people sitting on the same side of the table as you. So when someone else pitches, you can go, oh, that's a good idea. Let's vet it out. And they're not emotionally attached to it like you might be or I might be. Because I fall in love with ideas once again. I fall, I trust that if someone says they're going to do something and they're going to do it, but it doesn't always happen that way. What's important too is that what I had to learn kind of the hard way is not having all those people in your life in their own independent silo. Like they have to be working collaboratively or else everyone's kind of working in different directions. And you just, you're just not, the velocity of what you're kind of trying to accumulate or, or do is just, is so totally sidelined. So, I mean, would you agree? I think that's kind of the impetus for why you kind of put all of yours under one roof, so to speak, right? Yeah, and dude, that was brutal. That was freaking brutal. Now, I don't <laughs> own most of those companies, but I bet them. I have a 42-question application. We have a nine-month interview process. We, they have to get unanimously approved by everybody else in the network. They have to come and do trainings from us and then train us. And you know, right now, we're actually expanding our accounting division of that because our accountant is at capacity because great accountants eventually hit capacity. So we're looking at buying accounting firms. We've been having accountants come to our workshops. I just I just had one that like uh, we agreed 100% on everything he said and I said, which is a rarity. But that's our we're always searching for that because we know if it's missing, that people end up losing money. There's there's holes in their foundation. There's cracks in their foundation. And it is almost impossible to go find this on your own because shit, we're full time at it and we know the questions to ask, you know? And so it's, it's, a, it's one of the harder things that we do, but it's also the reason why, you know, I was just talking to one of my, one of the doctors I work with and he goes, this is the first six year period of my life since I started working with you guys that I've never had a loss. I'm like, yep, because we have real due diligence because we're making sure that you're protecting your downside. We're making sure you're using the methodology of the ultra affluent rather than the middle class or the poor that are speculative and risky and that are getting bite-sized bits of information and missing the whole picture. You know, you when you sent me the book, Garrett, you know, your new book, What Would the Rockefellers Do? I I remember I got it and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skim through it tonight. And I got in bed about eight o'clock and literally I, I think I put it down and I was finished with it. I don't know what time in the morning, but it was one of those things that I kept reading. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what, what why didn't I think of this? You know? <laughs> That's literally that was going on in my head. Can you talk about it a little bit and give a little bit of context and background to what I, I know it does it kind of parlay off of your first book a little bit, you know, the philosophies of your first book, you know, killing sacred cows? Does it I think it's kind of a phase two almost, right? Yeah, let me give a, an admission of okay. killing sacred cows. My co-author actually wrote it. I spoke it. So I just read Killing Sacred Cows because it's coming out an audiobook before the end of the before the end of 2016. And when I read it, I was like, man, these aren't my words, even though it's my philosophies. And it was really just taking what are the nine most subtle lies that people buy into that they have a hard time detecting that once it's exposed will help them be more prosperous, have more certainty. And it didn't put the pieces together in Killing Sacred Cows. It was just philosophical. And I think it was an important philosophical thing. When I wrote What Would the Rockefellers Do? It was like, yeah, I want to have the philosophy of what the Rockefellers learned but I wanted to have really practical strategies that people could put on the ground and implement. At the same time, I had a hard time with that because if you go to Amazon, it's a thousand bucks and people go, well, why is it a thousand bucks? Is that real? I'm like, well, one, I think the book is worth more than that, but 
Mm-hmm. I also don't want financial advisors that don't understand how to implement these concepts properly, bastardizing it in the name of commission. Because what we're trying to do is mimic what the ultra wealthy do, but a lot of what they do is private placement. There is no middleman. There is no commission involved. So we had to learn how to design these structures the same way, which means the advisors have to get paid one-fourth of the commission they might normally get paid. And I don't sit down and implement the strategies, but I've certified people kind of throughout the country. So when I wrote What the Rockefellers Do, it was more of a study of what are the practical steps right now and what does that lead to from a generational standpoint where Killing Sacred Cows just said, hey, in your own mind, what are nine things that could really harm you from building more wealth? And so they're actually not that much crossover between the two books other than the philosophies and principles are the same, but I actually really took it from a different angle. And when you read What Would the Rockefellers Do, it's not as articulate as, as Killing Sacred Cows because I didn't have a classical reader writing. It's more just how I sound. It's more my words. And for me, that makes it a little bit simpler to digest and understand what's going on. Yeah, and it was. It was very. It was able to digest the content very, very easily. Which I'm writing in the sideline of like action items I wanted to take just from kind of reading it. So, can we talk about some of the the you know the thirty thousand foot view, if you will, or the big yeah. bullet points in the book? I love the legacy aspect of it. You know, I think that everyone desires to leave a legacy. I mean, you you talk about it in this world. Like I said, everyone desires it, but you know, no one's really intentional about it. They just kind of hope like, oh, I hope this is what people are going to think about me, or I hope this is what I leave. But you've been very strategic with planning it out in legacy from your day to day now, like when you're alive, but also when you pass. So I want you to talk about that, you know, the family banking, the, the buying your net worth. Yep. I know that's opening up a lot of things and probably giving away, you know, a lot of the content of the I book. Let's give but- it away. How about, right, go. how about I give away the book? All right, deal. All right, to all right. all, hey, only to Bulletproof <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. That might be true because I did two podcasts where I gave mm-hmm. away the book, just the uh-huh. download, and I gave the wrong number. And dude, no. it's a woman who is very angry with me right now and uh, <laughs> told me that she's got harassment because of all the text messages. And I've, I paid her. I sent her a hundred bucks for the inconvenience. I asked what else I could do. So I have this etched in my mind. I will get the right number to everyone. Cause what you do is you send a text and the, the text subject is WWRD as in what would the Rockefellers do? WWRD yeah. and the numbers 801-396-7211. 801-396-7211. WWRD. And here's the deal. 801-396-7211. That. You'll get the download, no charge. But if you want me to buy you a copy of the book, which cost me right now, uh, the first round was more expensive, $11.50 because we have nice raised lettering and a really mm-hmm. nice cover. $11.50, I'll pay. If you'll pay $6.95 for shipping and handling, I'll actually send you the book and you can just respond to the text message. But that way you'll kind of have it in your hands. It's better than paying a thousand bucks on Amazon. But now I can kind of dive into what, why you might want to read the book. And let me just start with the first story in the book. Cornelius Vanderbilt had more money than the U.S. Treasury. That's insane. More money than the U.S. Treasury. And 54 years after he died, the first Vanderbilt heir died broke. They went and they went away from their investor DNA. They just bought things out of extravagance and not thinking about investing. They didn't have a Rockefeller-style family office where the Rockefellers are on their sixth generation, donated $50 million last year to charity, and their net worth grew. What's the difference? Well, that's what I start covering in the book, because there's this really 
weird strategy the Rockefellers use to the layperson. To like, like when I was 18, I was looking to invest, and the first thing I was sold was some cash value insurance plan that was investing in the stock market. And three months later, I figured out it was really pretty crappy. It was expensive. It wasn't going to perform. And they had overhyped up what it could do. But it also led me down what is better out there. And it just so happened that you can do an overfunded whole life policy if you design it properly to use cash. And they use it as a family bank where they don't have to use the institutions. They pay themselves back through the trust and pay interest. But every generation that benefits from the trust has a death benefit that replenishes the trust. So they have their own banking system as a family and they have they don't have to participate in the downside of the market because now the money you're storing might earn four or five percent. It's tax-free, all that kind of stuff, which I know for some people they're going, I hate that kind of stuff and insurance. And look, I get it. It's paid high, it pays high commissions, all these problems. That's why I want to make sure it's designed properly. And I kind of have that checklist in the book. And then I go into how do you build your trust? to perpetuate, preserve, and protect your wealth so it doesn't get destroyed from generation to generation. And I give actual excerpts from my trust that people can look and see how we've done it mm -hmm. so that they could do it for themselves. Everything from having a, a small board of directors to having your own language about your own philosophies that can be signposts for your heirs. I mean, this, this book is kind of sandwiched between philosophy, but in the middle of it is very, very practical ways for you to keep more of every dollar you make actual strategies to be more efficient with your cash and then finding ways to start boosting up and getting 400 to 800% better rate of return on your savings, knowing how financial institutions really work and how the game's rigged against you and how you can turn around and rig it in your favor. I mean, yeah, I, I, put, I put my heart in the book for sure. Yeah. And it's totally obvious. I mean, you know, some of the things that just, like I said, they just jumped out, jumped out to me and I was like, wow, you can, you really can. I love the term, like you can buy your net worth. Like, you that's know, that's a big you, one. That's a, the big that's just, I was like, you know, it blew me away. Cause I was like, that's a guarantee for the next people in line. And, you know, and I think the cool part is about that. The Rockefellers did was, was you correct me if I'm wrong, but they could borrow from, you know, like, let's say they could borrow from the fund, but the rule was they had to pay it back. So they didn't have to jump through all the financial hoops and the banks and you know, banks now ask for blood types and you know, <laughs> right. underwear size and like all sorts of stuff, right? They didn't have to jump to that. They said, I'd like, to, yeah. I'd, like, I'd like some money. And, you know, this private family bank, I guess, is, is uh, you know, but the requirement was you had to pay it back. Is that right? So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much that could be done, but this buying net worth concept is, I think, revolutionary. Like, look, mm -hmm. there's some things that are, you could hear from other places and read from other resources, but actually share a letter from Andrew Carnegie's business partner that owned 20% of the business that left a couple mm -hmm. million dollars to his heirs that's now worth $10 billion. Like to see the actual letter that's in wow. the book, right? I think that's a pretty cool thing that you can see what one page that he wrote made that big of a difference. Where the Vanderbilts, I mean, some of their mansions have been torn down. One of them is a, a public museum in Rhode Island. I mean, Oh, man, it's, this is a big concept. And I think it, it can really change people's financial future and their family's destiny. I mean, that's a, that's it's, a big thing. It's a paradigm shift really in the way you're thinking. And, you know, so people are going to be now conflicted like I was again when reading your book is like, OK, I've got a lot of work to do. And what now? And here's where I am now. And in, in these I don't know. It's a great thing because it challenges you, Garrett, from a sense of, you know, where you are. I mean, obviously, you read the book and you say, Here's where I am now. And wow, these are great ideas. And how do I implement these? And I think it becomes a little overwhelming. 
So is there some kind of first steps that you could recommend for someone? Let's say even if they didn't, let's say if they didn't get your book, like, can you recommend some first steps? I know you've gone over some pearls well, well, earlier yeah, in this discussion. Yeah. That, that's an yeah. account where you pay yourself first is, is a quick okay. step. I mean, okay. And the 18%, I wrote that down. For pay sure. yourself okay. first. I mean, hell, if you don't get my book, get George S. Clausen's book from the 1920s, Richest Man in Babylon. And paying yourself first is the most foundational, fundamental piece of finance. It can eliminate the necessity to budget. It can make mm-hmm. sure that you capture wealth more easily and consistently and automated. And then mm-hmm. when the money's there, you can decide to pay off loans. You can decide to invest money. You can decide to leave it there so that you have stake power when the next downturn happens. I mean, there's just, that's the most fundamental thing. I like to turn that into overfunded whole life because then I get to use that with protected from liability, protected from bankruptcy. I never have to buy long-term care because there's a provision where I can use 50% of my death benefit for long-term mm-hmm. care if needed. And that saves that. And I don't have to pay for term insurance. And so the stock market has to do 9.9% to benefit me at the same level as my overfunded whole life policy. Think about that. And it's actually more my savings account than anything. It's not my best growth strategy. It's my best midterm strategy that facilitates growth. I bought cars with it, TV studios, businesses, paid off a 17.9% American Express card back in 2008 mm-hmm. when I was financing my book for a minute when my money was tied up in real estate. I mean, hell, I've, I've used it over and over and over again. It's been my never fail me strategy. So that's the second thing I would look at. And then the third thing is anything that you're invested in now that you don't understand, you don't know how you're going to benefit from it. You have no exit strategy. Stop putting money in it. Stop putting money in it and put it in your separate account for now. That's just your your side savings account, and then let until it, you figure yeah, it out. Yeah, how you figure it out, and then invest in becoming a better investor instead of just chasing the next investment. That's a huge deal. Invest in becoming a better investor rather than uh-huh. chasing the next investment will change people's lives. And that you know, and honestly, when I hear you say that, that could mean better investor could mean investing in me, which would make me a better dentist, which would make me more you know, like all these things. Investment doesn't have to be like where am I going to put my money. I mean, I guess it exactly. does, but like you could you could really say that I'm going to invest in in my clinical skills. I'm going to invest in my business. I'm going to invest in maybe yes, this business opportunity, but like learn it. I love that you know, invest in learning how to invest. That's awesome. Man, Gary, again, I've, I've, I've been writing notes down here fast and fast and furious. Okay. So I'm going to put in the show notes, how people can, how can people contact you? I know you've given the text of how they can get the book. Is there a way to reach out if someone wants to know more or they've got a question about this podcast? Cause you were, you were flying and, uh, and that's awesome. You just deliver value at a rapid pace. What could be some follow-ups for someone if they ask some questions? Builders at wealthfactory.com. So builders, B-U-I-L-D-E-R-S at wealthfactory.com. They go to wealthfactory.com forward slash WF is in Wealth Factory Resources. Okay. And there's some really cool kind of freebies there. Everything from the articles I write for Forbes to some cool cash flow optimization tips and guides. So those are probably the two best things. Builders is my entire customer service division. So they can kind of go back and forth. And then uh, wealthfactory.com forward slash WF resources are just some of my kind of highlight things for people to get to know more about who we are since I speak at a hundred miles an hour instead of, you know, at a normal speed limit. 
I like it though, man. I like it. I, I have I'm guilty of the same thing sometimes. Sometimes when you just get passionate about what you're doing or what you're talking about, you just you can't help it but just roll because you get so excited. And it's obvious that you are passionate about what you do. You know, God has you in the right place in life right now and helping a lot of people. I really feel that's the way. You know, you're in the right position for sure for where you're supposed to be. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, buddy. All right. Can you would you mind it? I would do like to do a speed round with some people at the end of a podcast. And just kind of breaks us out of the talking about the, the niche topic that we were talking about. And it kind of just, yeah, a little speed round of some okay. questions I ask you. Game? Let's do it. All right. Favorite book. And you have to, it has to be book. Favorite book that you would recommend to someone. And it can't be, and it can't be what would the Rockefellers do? It can't be my book. <laughs> uh, the, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art. Not the, not the Art of War. Nope. The War of Art. The war of art. Got it. All right. Right. All right. Your favorite productivity tool, app, or software that you, you use every day? OmniFocus. OmniFocus. What is that? It's based off getting things done. If you're familiar with that book. And okay. it's just a, a great task manager and a good kind of way to capture everything that you're working on. OmniFocus. Love it. Love it. All right. And I realize that you're not a dentist, but you work with a lot of dentists. Where do you see the future? of dentistry. So sometimes when I ask a dentist this, Garrett, it's mainly like we talk about like, do you see corporate taking corporate over? Corporate dentistry and commoditization yeah. and DPO. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, where do you see being that you're kind of, you know, dentists will confide in you about kind of things and stuff. Where do you see it as a consumer, but as an educated, someone who works with a lot of dentists, where do you see the future? I think that there's going to be more like concierge dentistry where like I, as, as a wealthier person, I want to have a great dentist that's got high profile so that I feel like I'm being taken care of at a different level and where a lot of it's going to be marginalized and commoditized for the poor and middle class. I think the the more upper middle class and highly affluent people aren't going to want to deal with corporate dentistry. They're going to want to deal with someone that's creating experience. They're going to deal with someone that's knowledgeable and that is renowned. And so I think you're going to see a big division happened there. And those are the people okay. that will end up going out there and really, really succeeding when everything else gets marginalized. And yeah, I do think that it's going to be an interesting time just because technology is moving so rapidly. But let's face it, dentistry is one of those things where if you can make people feel comfortable, if you got good bedside manner and you've got an inviting atmosphere and ambiance, like, dude, my, my wife drives an hour because she loves her dentist. Drives an hour. And guess what? That means I drive an hour to the office yeah. to see my dentist because he's actually just a great technician and he's always got a waiting list and corporate dentistry isn't impacting him in the slightest. It's impacting those that are in scarcity, that don't have a lot of vision and that don't understand marketing. I think the more you become a thought leader in the future where you've got you know everything from podcasts to showing up and talking about how different health issues in the world, how dentistry relates, I feel like you're going to see more Dr. Oz types in dentistry that when they point their finger somewhere, that's where people are going to go. And it's not going to be pointing the finger at the average corporate dental place that doesn't, that's just you know, kind of like of a, a drill, fill and bill shop. I love it, dude. That's, that is insightful. And I, it's optimistic. And, you know, because a lot of times we hear that people, you know, th you, when you're around a lot of dentists, we all think that, oh my gosh, there's corporate takeover and all this. And it, you're right. It's a scarcity mentality sometimes. And so I appreciate you giving me your insight on that. I, I don't, I don't shop at Walmart, man. 
I mean, I did to buy some toys for tots this year, but I don't uh -huh. shop at Walmart. I don't, you know, it's right. like, I don't eat at McDonald's. And so did McDonald's ruin the food industry? There's still plenty of restaurants thriving and we've moved to more trendy foodie. I mean, hell, Atlanta is like a revolution. It's like some pretty amazing restaurants there that, you know, 20 years ago, think about it. What was restaurants in the United States? Burgers, fries, hot dogs, right, very basic. that were cafes. Mm -hmm. And what we've had is put us against Europe, man. We've got some of the best food in the world. We got more master psalms in Vegas than anywhere in the world. And, and Vegas used to be, you know, all about cheap 99 cent shrimp cocktail and buffets. So I know that there's just because McDonald's of dentistry exists now that didn't exist before, that doesn't mean the other restaurants go away. It means the other restaurants become more exclusive, more expensive and cater to their clientele better. I love it, man. I love it. Garrett, uh, your time, I know you're, I know you've had probably have kept you on now for about an hour. I know pr probably people are waiting on you in another room for another, probably another meeting that you've got going on. I know you're a busy man and very important. Your time is very important. So I thank you so much for, for uh, spending time today, day, kind of going through this again. I was writing, writing notes fast and furious. I'll be sure to put up some good show notes from this. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if your phone starts blowing up or the phone starts blowing up with texts for people requesting free books. And, and at least um, to the right place. At least I said the right. Yes. At least to the right number this time. So buddy, that's it. Thanks so much again. And uh, yeah, you're the best. Have a great one. Really appreciate you. All right, pal. Thanks so much for listening to Bulletproof Dental Practice with your host, Dr. Peter Bolden, online at bulletproofdentalpractice.com. We'll catch you next time.